quote as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. End quote. Nelson Mandela. As we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. Think about that. the great Nelson Mandela how we need his wisdom and from Corey Empowers you all may remember Corey Empowers dot com Take time to chill, take time to think, take time to look forward to whatever is next. Don't let a temporary current situation dim the light on what you see for yourself. Hashtag Keep excelling. Black History Mini Docs. Gabriel Prosser was the leader of an unsex unsuccessful slave revolt in Richmond, Virginia, in 1800, born into slavery around 1775. Gabriel Prosser was owned by Thomas H. Prosser of Henrico County, Virginia. Little is known of Prosser's life before the revolt that catapulted him into notoriety. Prosser's two brothers, Solomon and Martin, and his wife, Nanny, were all owned by Thomas Prosser and all participated in the insurrection. Gabriel Prosser at the time of the insurrection. Gabriel Prosser at the time of the insurrection was 24 years old, 6 feet 2 inches, literate, and a blacksmith by trade. He was described he was described by a contemporary as, quote, 
a fellow of courage and intellect above his rank in life, end quote, with the help of other slaves, including Jack Bowler and George Smith, Prosser devised a plan, a plan to seize control of Richmond by killing all of the whites except the Methodists, Quakers, and Frenchmen, and then establishing a kingdom of Virginia with himself as monarch. Prosser and the other revolt leaders were probably influenced by the American Revolution and, more recently, the French and Haitian revolutions. with their rhetoric of freedom, equality, and brotherhood in the months prior to the revolt. Prosser recruited hundreds of supporters and organized them into military units, although Virginia authorities never determined the extent of the revolt. They estimated that several thousand planned to participate, including many who were to be armed with swords and pikes made from farm tools by slave blacksmiths. Prosser planned to initiate the insurrection on the night of August 30th. 1800. However, earlier in the day, two enslaved humans who wanted to protect their masters betrayed the plot to Virginia authorities. Governor James Monroe alerted the militia. A rainstorm delayed the uprising by 24 hours preventing Prosser's army from assembling outside Richmond and providing the militia crucial time providing the militia crucial time to prepare a defense of the city. Realizing their plan had been discovered, Prosser and many of his followers dispersed into the countryside. About 25 leaders were captured, tried, and executed. But Prosser escaped to Norfolk, 
where he was betrayed by fellows enslaved who claimed the reward for his capture on September 25th. Prosser was returned to Richmond and tried for his role in the abortive uprising. (coughs) He was found guilty on October 6th, 1800, and executed the following day. Sources Herbert Apthiker, A P T H E K E R, American Negro Slave Revolts, New York. International Publishers, 1974. Contributor Reed, Wilson Edward. Jazz Pianoist. Jazz pianist and composer Thelonious Sphere Monk was born on October 10th, 1917. He had an extraordinary improvisational style and made numerous contributions to the standard jazz repertoire, including Round Midnight, Blue Monk, Straight No Chaser, Ruby My Dear, In Walked Bud, and Well You Needn't. No one played the piano like Monk, and because of his unique talent he is the second most recorded jazz composer after Duke Ellington. Monk transcended on February 17, larger public sphere has always emphasized the importance of building communities of struggle for economic, racial, and gender justice. Mariah Parker is a queer hip-hop artist, organizer, and PhD candidate in linguistics at the University of Georgia. She was also elected county commissioner at age 26 as part of the new wave of young women of color entering politics nationwide. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Dr. Angela Y. Davis, 
and Mariah Parker. Yay, thank you so much. So when we first started thinking about doing a virtual youth summit, having you two come on together in conversation was one of the first things we thought about. And we wanted to do something unique. We wanted to have you each ask each other questions. Um, but before I hand it off to you and extra screen, I want to start off a question to both of you. So intentionally, we made this youth summit intergenerational. So it's a variety of our, you know, our speakers and artists um, who build across generations. And I want to ask you, um, Angela, first, and then Mariah, you can bounce off. What is the importance of opening the conversation to involve several generations? Well, good afternoon, and thank you, Amalia, for inviting me to participate in uh, this youth summit organized by Speak Out. Uh, and uh, congratulations, Mariah. It's really wonderful to meet you. And I look forward to um, having this conversation with you. So since, I'm, um, since I've been asked about uh, the importance of intergenerationality, I think I would say that communicating across generations helps us to create the kind of continuity in social justice struggles that allows younger generations to learn from past strategies and agendas in order to create new ones that are both anchored in those past conceptualizations, but go beyond them. Um, and um, I think that this kind of continuity assures that, um, that those unfulfilled promises of the past can become agendas, uh, more robust agendas uh, for the future. So um, young people, um, allow us to understand, to better understand what we ourselves uh, were attempting, but not yet fully understanding where we were going. So, so I would say that younger generations always um, uh, chart the new route, always uh, uh, show us the path forward. Uh, and older generations uh, should be supportive, should learn from the work of younger generations um, and um, you know hope you'll hopefully we'll um, move in the same direction together yeah i couldn't agree more and think it's so important for us as young organizers to learn from the, the histories of struggle that have come before before us the struggles that they faced with regards to strategy with regards to the demands they made and the ways they were building coalition and so that we can take some of the, uh, the things that didn't work, the things that did, and use that to inform the way that we move forward. And so to learn from that past is so critical for ensuring that we are strategizing and organizing in ways that fulfill those promises of old, um, but also learn from the tactics of old in, 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 in making sure our future is different. Thank you so much. I'll let you all take it from here. All right. It's such a pleasure to be here with you tonight, Dr. Um, Davis. I've been a longtime student of your work. And I know that you've been involved in many movements for social justice since you were a teenager. And I wonder what makes you hopeful about the current moment? Well, I'm, I think I'm more hopeful now than I've been in a long time. Uh, because um, 
I don't think I really expected to experience this moment. Uh, uh, those of us who've been talking about evolution and um, uh, the future you know, often have pointed out that, well, we, we probably won't see this in our lifetime. We won't see uh, evolution become um, a popular way of giving expression to radical uh, um, uh, political uh, goals. But, of course, uh, at the same time, uh, many of us have said that uh, we have to act as if it were possible uh, to achieve these goals. And I think that uh, today we're so much closer than I could have imagined uh, 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 in, in the past. Um, but, of course, that um, means that, um, that that we have to take advantage of this current conjuncture. We have to do the work that is required in order to anchor our struggles um, in a more radical way so that we, we can begin building uh, toward an end to racism and heteropatriarchy and, and, and um, the... the um, uh, ways in which the entire uh, planet has been uh, damaged by capitalism. Yeah, I feel very hopeful in this current moment, too. When I became a student of abolition in 2018, um, right after I became um, a county commissioner, it was a very fringe idea, one that, you know, a viewpoint that was not held by many of my constituents yet. Um, and so the fact that it's become mainstreamed in just the last couple months alone gives me a lot of hope for what we can accomplish in the months and years ahead. Um, you've often said that your life was saved by a mass movement that was organized all over the world. Can you tell us about witnessing this collective power in action and how it resonates today? Particularly, I was hoping if you could speak about the power of international solidarity, what it looks like and what it can accomplish. Well, I grew to political maturity uh, during a period uh, when international solidarity uh, was uh, very powerfully emphasized. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, the black movement uh, in, in the U.S. was inspired very much by what was happening in Africa, by what was happening in, in Latin America. There were uh, struggles for for African liberation um, all over the continent. Uh, there was the Cuban Revolution. Um, and, and so uh, I think we felt a part of what appeared at that time to be a planetary um, um, impulse uh, uh, moving us uh, uh, in the direction of uh, perhaps an end to racial capitalism. Uh, mm -hmm. And when, when I was in jail, charged with um, a number of, of, of capital crimes uh, that could have at one point uh, taken me um, directly into the gas chamber, uh, um, the state of California abolished the death penalty uh, while I was still in jail. Uh, but. Uh, it was the international movement that saved my life. Uh, people organized all over the country, of course, but also all over the world. I was a member of the Communist Party, and there were Communist parties uh, in uh, virtually every country 
um, in in the world. There were all, also other formations, uh, and and I'm I'm persuaded that had it not been for all of the organizing, the demonstrations, the petitions, uh, uh, the telephone calls and telegrams. That's what we did in those days. We didn't have, you know, the new technologies of communication that I uh, might very well uh, still be in one of the um, women's prisons in California. So, uh, and, and let me say that um, um, I'll, I'll never forget that James Baldwin, uh, whom I had uh, met earlier because of my involvement in L.A. SNCC. Uh, James Baldwin wrote this powerful uh, letter, open letter to me, uh, uh, in, 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 in which he, he, he said that, uh, that people had to recognize uh, that if they came for me in the morning, they would be coming for uh, uh, the rest at night. If they come for you in the morning, they will be coming for us at night. And that letter circulated all over the world and, and helped to draw people into that movement. Um, and as a matter of fact, I always point out that people know my name today, not so much because of the things that I've done as an individual, but precisely because of that movement. So I see myself as representing all of the people who were involved in that movement, because we need that kind of solidarity uh, today. Uh, and we need solidarity, but we also need more than solidarity, uh, especially during this period of increased uh, migration, climate injustice, racist state violence in many countries. We can, we can truly learn from the struggles of people in other countries. And I think that even those of us who consider ourselves radical activists in the U.S. Uh, um, are um, sometimes affected by American exceptionalism. And we sometimes believe that because we live in what is considered to be the most powerful country in, 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 in the world, um, we have the answer. Uh, and therefore, we don't approach... Uh, other peoples and other movements with a kind of humility that would allow us to learn important lessons uh, uh, for our struggles here. So, so I would like to say that we really need to look toward Brazil, especially uh, considering the fact that the most powerful social movement in Brazil is the black women's movement uh, um, and the whole history of black women in leadership, especially in, um, in the... Uh, religious practices, uh, uh, African traditional religious practices in, in Brazil. Uh, and of course, we need to learn from Palestine. Uh, and we need to be aware of the fact that people are struggling against racist state violence in places like France. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I think this is the moment where we have to really emphasize our connections with people beyond
gone to office or are running for office. And I should, I should tell you that I was really impressed in Brazil uh, when I went in the aftermath of the assassination of Marielle Franco, uh, who was an elected official in Rio and at the same time um, an activist in black and, and queer movement and movements against militarization. Uh, uh, but in the aftermath of her assassination, um, large numbers of black women ran for office and many of them won. As a matter of fact, uh, the first black trans woman uh, was elected to parliament in Sao Paulo, uh, Erica Malinguino. Uh, and so I, I'd like you to talk about your experience of running for office. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so I never saw myself as a person that would hold political power um, when I was growing up or in my early adulthood. Um, but I started, you know, getting into, involved in community organizing through hip hop, um, bringing people together around music, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. But um, through that experience of being a hip hop promoter, I heard so many stories of struggle of people who in their music were talking about turning to selling drugs because they were tired of making seven twenty-five an hour working at Dairy Queen. Stories of folks um, being incarcerated for no, you know, fault of their own, having hung out on a corner and been profiled as being part of a gang. And saw that cultural change, we need cultural shifts, yes. And the barriers we broke down in terms of racial divide through art was uh, transformational for the community, but we needed public policy change in order to change the material conditions that were informing the stories that people told in their music. And so um, I was faced with a scenario in which the man who had represented my district in Athens had run unopposed for 25 years, during which period um, we saw um, our educational system fall farther and farther behind, our infrastructure begin to crumble, gentrification sweeping black families out of our neighborhoods. And um, I saw the need to step up. Um, it's easy enough to sit around on the sidelines and hope that someone else will jump into action and do something. Mm -hmm. But I saw in this moment that I may lack the political expertise or lack the connections or not have the money. Um, I might have a checkered past with running with police and um, struggles with substance abuse myself, um, you know, in my history, but someone had to do something and that someone had to be me. I couldn't wait around for someone else. It had to be me because it's so important that people have options. People see, um, see not only what their government should do for them, but change, changing their imaginations of what they deserve and what is possible through local public policy. And so putting that option on the ballot um, just to you know, create robust conversations in our communities through debates and through canvassing and through talking to people on the phone about what public policy can do to change their lives. So I decided to run for office three months before the election. Um, and we got out there you know, with this coalition of working class, service industry folks, young people, students, musicians, um, and started going out into the community and listening to people, listening to what, you know, what things that people wanted to see and offering our policy prescriptions for how we could transform the material conditions in their lives. And through those three months of thousands of conversations, thousands of doors knocked, hundreds of miles walked, you know, holes in our sneakers by the end of it all, um, I was able to, to win by 13 votes. 
And I never forget, I tell this story frequently, that I stood out in the rain in the parking lot of the elementary school, which was the main voting location in my district. And I talked to numerous people in the parking lot that day who pulled up and rolled down their car windows and said, I heard there was an election today. Who should I vote for? So particularly at the local level, you know, our votes are so important or so critical and not just voting, but also contending for and taking power so that the activists in the streets have an ally behind the rail, you know, at the table in those seats of power to materialize those policy demands. And so that's the work that I've been doing ever since. So are you connected um, with other young people who are considering running for office or who have run for office? Uh, um, because sometimes the electoral arena is, um, is a bit of a controversial site for a radical activist. Yeah. So what do you say to uh, people to encourage them to do what you've done? Yeah, I would say that our lived experiences are the expertise we need to make bold, transformative public policy. We've lived the failures of bad public policy, with it, you know whether it's access to reproductive health care, access to mental health care, access to higher education, and the barriers that are in place, currently in place um, around these areas. Um, we've lived that. We know that intimately. We know how necessary change is. Um, how, how needed and critical it is. And so I think leveraging that lived expertise in coalition building, sharing those stories with our communities so they see that we are people just like them and that they will have through our you know candidacies representation that reflects the experiences that they themselves have had. Um, I think that is so important for young people to really own their histories, own their stories and share their stories um, and with that, anyone can win. It's just a matter of putting yourself out there, particularly when no one else shows up or the folks who are showing up aren't doing a good enough job. You can't wait around, like I said, for someone else to do the work. It has to be you if you see that it's necessary. So um, was, um, were, were you running um, on a, um, with a particular party? No, so my party, so my race was nonpartisan. Yeah, so I didn't have a party affiliation, yeah. And so how do you see the connection between what you're doing at the local level and what's happening nationally and internationally? Yeah, I mean, there's so much that we can do at the local level to make an impact on things like our global climate crisis with regards to divesting from fossil fuels and investing in, uh, in clean and renewable energy here at the local level with um, uh, helping folks access things like solar panels to the way we construct new buildings. Um, divesting from um, divesting from uh, the police. I think the calls to defund the police are really most like needed, and you have so much leverage to get to make change at that local level. You can actually, you know, you might not be able to get your congressman on the phone, but you can get a cup of coffee with your city council person and talk through the need for us to divest from policing and invest in uh, true harm reduction for our community and the resources our communities need to thrive. And so, um, so like a lot of a lot of national issues uh, ultimately trickle down into what we can do locally. And local politics is where I believe we can make a lot of a lot of change. Wonderful, wonderful. So, um, when faced with so many issues in society, Dr. Davis, from racism to economic justice uh, to climate change. 
uh, violence against women and trans people. How do we go about combating them all? I know, you know, as young folks, sometimes it's a little overwhelming for us to think about how we go to, how do we combat these, uh, these various forms of oppression? So what would you say to young folks who might be experiencing that overwhelm? Well, I think that the whole notion of intersectionality of struggles is helpful here uh, uh, because um, uh, many of us in the past who have spoken out uh, against the single issue strategies, I can remember many years ago when I was in jail and I was asked to um, write a statement for a reproductive rights um, big reproductive rights rally that was happening in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, and it was focused very specifically on abortion rights. Abortion rights are, as we know, extremely important. But in my statement, I was trying to make the connection between uh, the failure to achieve abortion rights and at the same time the imposition of sterilization on uh, indigenous uh, women and uh, black women in prison uh, and to to argue that reproductive rights required a, an attention to racism uh, they didn't read my statement because they thought that uh, uh, i had violated uh, uh, the you know the rules of working on the issue of abortion so we don't want to do that uh, but at the same time, as you say, we know that we can't do everything. Uh, but what we can do is work with a, a consciousness of all of the interconnected struggles, uh, uh, so that um, when we when we are involved in in campaigns um, against gender violence, it's important to recognize that uh, we cannot. Um, fail to, to see that uh, black trans women are the target of, 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 of all kinds of um, violences from uh, state violence to stranger violence, individual violence, intimate violence. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, that has to be included within our way of thinking about what it means to challenge gender violence. Uh, uh, climate change. How can we not um, devote some energy to preventing the ravages uh, of, 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 of the planet, to prevent um, climate change? Because, of course, if we do manage to win struggles against racism, against um, um, homophobia, misogyny, etc., but our uh, planet is dead as a result of the ways in which the corporate world has so exploited uh, 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 the planet, then of course it will have made no sense at all. It will, it, our victories will be meaningless. So I think that it, it, it really is about a way of um, conceptualizing what it is we're doing. And sometimes we have to uh, work very uh, intensely on a very specific issue. And we do that, but we do that against the backdrop of a 
understanding the intersectionality of struggles or what Dr. King called the um, indivisibility of justice. I couldn't agree more. I think so much in my own organizing about, you know, using a framework of abolition to argue for, our, for you know, achieving our basic rights to housing, to health care, to education. Um, but thinking about how that impacts my queer brothers and sisters, how that impacts black and brown youth, how that impacts our uh, immigrant brothers and sisters, how that impacts folks of, of, of very gendered identities. And so bringing that into our issue focus, with whether it's around access to public transportation, whether it's around climate change, whether it's around police violence, having that intersectional understanding of who is impacted by these issues is a way for us to maintain a clear view of our goals while making our struggles inclusive to all and making sure we're uplifting the least among us. Well, since you now hold public office uh, in the state of Georgia, um, and I know that, that you've been uh, doing a great deal of work uh, challenging um, the structural violence of, of policing. Uh, so I'd actually like to know about uh, your experiences, uh, uh, particularly in light of calls to defund the police and, and abolish the police. Yeah. I mean, I think that in an honor of Brianna, because they shot her in her sleep, and in honor of Eric Garner, his carotid in his sleep, in honor of Rashad because he'll never push his daughter on a swing again because he was in his car and fell asleep. And in honor of Andres Guardado, martyred in the street, we got to organize and agitate and start to believe that it might take another winter, another autumn, another sleep, another spring, but no matter how long it takes, we will abolish the police. And earlier this year, earlier this year, oh, thank, uh, you. <laughs> thank you. Earlier this year, I, uh, I put forward something called the 5010 plan, which is a plan to over 10 years transition 50% of our armed officer positions to positions of social work, restorative justice mediation, and uh, compassionate crisis intervention um, as a way of diversifying the array of crisis responses that are in our toolkit as a city to deal with anything from a man standing on a train bridge about to take his life who needs to talk to a mental health expert and not an armed officer, to a homeless individual breaking into cars to steal change out of a cup holder who, you know, uh, might need the benefit of a social worker to connect them to services, or for a couple that's in an argument at their home and might need someone to come and mediate that, uh, that argument. Or, or uh, you know, someone just having a loud house party and, and needs someone from code enforcement to come uh, ask them to turn the music down rather than have an armed officer respond. And so we're continuing to fight for that um, uh, through educating my colleagues on the commission about abolition as a framework for um, just supporting communities, strengthening the fabric of communities so that we reduce harm in them and uh, make sure that everyone is, it has the rights they're entitled to. Um, and so we continue to fight. We continue to organize on various platforms uh, from marching in the street to mass political education, as I've done through music and as I continue to do at rallies. And I am hopeful that, you know, in the coming months, we can implement a compassionate crisis response team um, with akin to the CAHOOTS model in Eugene, Oregon, to address if people need a wellness check, if someone's panhandling, if someone's loitering. These these minor issues that really just speak to 
um, underlying problems in our community that truly are what need fixing, um, we can um, have a more diverse array of responses to those kinds of situations. And then investing money in community gardens for our neighborhoods, in youth development opportunities, strengthening workplace democracy and fighting for living wage for folks as harm reduction measures. And so that's a little bit of the work that, you know, I'm engaged in here locally. Um, what uh, are your views um, on defunding or abolishing the police? Well, you know, I've learned a great deal um, from being a part of the evolution movement uh, mm -hmm. for a few decades now. Um, uh, you know, I can re I can remember when the Attica Rebellion took place uh, in 1971, and uh, uh, prisoners at Attica called for evolution of the prison system. It, it, it was the first time I seriously began to think about the possibility of a world without prisons. The critiques that people like George Jackson and other prisoners were developing. I think it's so important to uh, recall that so many of these ideas came from people who were in prison, who are incarcerated. Um, and one of, the, one of the most important things I think I've learned from being a part of the evolution movement is that um, uh, the struggle is, um, is, is, is a very broad struggle. It's not only directed at uh, particular institutions, but it's an ideological struggle as well. It calls upon us to uh, recognize how we have internalized uh, 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 notions of, of um, retribution, uh, uh, how, how our impulse always uh, is first to call the police. Uh, something happens, uh, and before we reflect on how we might uh, uh, address this issue in, in ways that do not involve the intervention of armed human beings, uh, the impulse is to let the police handle it. Uh, and, and also in our relations with each other, uh, uh, you know, even some of us who call for abolition of the prison system, abolition of the police, we have internalized those um, ideological impulses and we do the policing ourselves and we do the retributive reaction ourselves. And so I've learned about the holistic uh, character of abolition. We can't simply focus on specific institutions. We have to focus on ourselves, on our relationships, on our emotions, uh, um, on our culture. Um, so, um, yeah, I could talk for a long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too. This is a subject of which I'm really passionate about. And when you speak about the way we internalize this retributive thinking, it, re it recalls for me earlier this summer when I was facing some death threats uh, for my activism and for my calls to defund and abolish the police. And uh, people, you know, pressured me into pressing charges, contacting the police to let them know that these threats had been made against my life. But I urged people instead to think about the institutions that created those men that threatened my life, the churches that they went to, the schools they attended, their families, and how we can remake these institutions such that we are making a new kind of person through them, producing a new kind of culture through them where this kind of thing doesn't happen. If they had been thrown into jail, it's likely they may have grown bitter. 
and doubled down on their racism and their misogyny. They may have been connected with other white supremacists to uh, fortify their thinking, but instead thinking about the institutions that created them and how we remake those institutions um, as part of our abolitionist work. Um, scholarship um, around organizing, uh, or scholarship and organizing, rather, around prison abolition dates back decades, but the idea of police abolition feels very new to many people. Can you speak to the history of police abolition? And uh, I wonder what you think about if there can be a world without with police but without prisons, and or if the whole, all, both systems need to go entirely. That's a really interesting question. And um, in my experience, police abolition has always been linked to prison abolition, either implicitly or explicitly. Uh, strategies designed to resolve issues with of issues of harm without resorting to the police have been linked to um, prison abolition strategies from uh, from its origin during the contemporary period. Uh, and I, I think it might be interesting for people to look at the statement that was issued, I think it was 2001, a joint statement by Critical Resistance um, and um, Insight, uh, uh, which, uh, as many people know, is um, an organization of women of color against uh, violence. Uh, and that statement um, very specifically called for developing creative ways uh, to uh, begin to address issues of gender violence uh, without relying on, on, on the police. Uh, uh, activists um, uh, have created police-free zones. Uh, uh, so I think that now uh, we are confronted with real possibilities of um, beginning to shrink the power of, 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 of the police. Uh, uh, the whole notion of police abolition has come to uh, the fore. Uh, and I mean, it's interesting because um, I don't think we would have ever imagined it happening this way. Uh, um, and sometimes uh, moments arrive, these historical conjunctures that are, are produced, uh, in this case, of course, uh, in the context of the um, COVID-19 pandemic and the recognition of structural violence um, uh, structural racism, rather, within the healthcare system, uh, and the confluence of that with the um, uh, lynching of the police lynching of George Floyd and the police murder of Breonna Taylor and Tony McVeigh and so forth and so on, um, uh, created this moment of emergency, uh, and, and 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 I can remember uh, seeing the. Um, slogan, defund the police, uh, uh, which, which happened exactly when it should have happened, uh, because it meant that we were able to um, enact a kind of rupture with the past strategies that have always been uh, focused only on prosecuting the individual police officer, find the bad apples and, 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 and remove them. Uh, reform the police, uh, just as calls have 
for the uh, ref for the reforming of, of the prison system. As a matter of fact, reform, um, the refrain of reform has accompanied the development of both institutions from uh, their very foundation. As a matter of fact, I like to think of reform as the glue that has made these um, um, these these structures of, of, of state violence uh, more permanent uh, and more solid. Uh, um, yeah, so uh, yeah. it's really exciting now. <laughs> it's a very exciting moment, and I really love your uh, your, your metaphor of re reform as the glue that holds it together. Um, and I strongly recommend people read uh, Prison by Any Other Name by Victoria Law and Maya Shenoir, where they talk about the dangerous reforms that are, have become common sense to many legislators and in our in our common common discourse, um, and how and uh, abolitionist alternatives um, for us to pursue. Yeah, their book is really wonderful. Uh, yeah, really good read. I, I I totally agree. Everyone should read that. Yeah, because it's not it's 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 not about uh, uh, looking for ways to make the system more humane or or introducing um, um, home arrests and how, you know, right. how to, yeah. you know all, all of those alternatives that have been uh, represented as alternatives to incarceration, but they extend the net of carcerality even further. Exactly, exactly. Well, let's see, what do we talk about next? Oh, so let's talk a little bit about progress. What is progress to you? Our definition in this country um, is often about economic progress and not about the well-being or uh, people or the planet. What does progress look like for different groups? And what does meaningful social justice progress over the next few years look like to you? You know, that's a really complicated question. Um, because I think I would argue that on the one hand, we've made very little progress. Uh, we're still addressing issues that should have been addressed in the immediate aftermath of slavery. Uh, it feels like we're slipping backwards in some terms as well. Exactly, exactly. But then on the other hand, we've accomplished so much. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I like to look um, I like to look at the realm of consciousness, uh, of collective consciousness, uh, uh, for uh, progress. That, and I'm, you know, I'm trained in philosophy, and and and, and 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 one of the insights that I constantly refer to is um, by a German philosopher named um, Georg Friedrich Hegel, mm -hmm. and he um, he argued that. Um, um, uh, Progress in the consciousness of freedom—that um, uh, is what history is. He says history is progress in the consciousness of freedom. And I think if one looks at black struggles, of course, one can also look at uh, struggles of indigenous and, and and Latinx communities. But if one specifically looks at the struggles of black people in this part of the world, in in, in, in this hemisphere, um, it is remarkable that over the last five decades, and, and, and we 
can say that the first slave revolt took place in 1526 uh, uh, in, in this country. Uh, and to think that um, over um, five decades, five centuries rather practically, this collective impulse to struggle for freedom has continued to um, motivate um, generation after generation after generation. And that's actually really remarkable. Um, you know, one of the things I'd like to add when I think about this long um, a stretch of history is that not only have black people struggled against the worst possible manifestations of racist violence, uh, and not only have they experience the, 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 the most imaginable hardships, but in the process have created beauty and pleasure. And I like the way that you incorporate uh, music uh, in, in, in the ways in which you are thinking about uh, our um, organizing. Um, because I think that um, that is a measure of progress. Uh, and over over the decades and over the centuries, we have become increasingly conscious of the um, of, of, of more holistic definitions of freedom. Uh, our notions of freedom have become um, larger and, and broader. Uh, you know, back in back in, in, in the sixties, uh, uh, if uh, there had been a conversation about pronouns and the need to uh, um, acknowledge pronouns, people would have said, well, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, uh, but of course, uh, the ways in which uh, the trans movement has called upon us to think deeply about the nature of normalcy. Uh, and, and, and the normal is the realm of ideology. A friend of mine has said that um, when you look at what appears to be the most normal expression, there you find the role of ideology. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm excited about uh, the ways in which our notions of freedom have become so much more expansive. Uh, uh, in, in, in the beginning, in the black movement, it was about freedom for the black man, literally for the black man. And now, of course, uh, with uh, our various uh, notions of the relationality of, of issues and struggles and intersectionality, we are much more equipped, uh, I think, to um, move forward in a progressive direction. And so one of the things I think now is actually it's good that we didn't win the revolution when we thought we were going to win. <laughs> because had we won at that point, we would have... Uh, institutionalize some of the worst, you know, forms of, of, of injustice, uh, because we were not conscious of the importance of, of the centrality of gender and, and, and sexuality and, and, and the, the, the movements of, um, uh, of, of dis the disabled people. And so I, I think that, that we are making progress in uh, the consciousness of freedom. And that's beautiful, I think. Yeah, agreed.
So I am a PhD student at the University of Georgia. Right. But what year are you in? Oh, I'm in my final year. Oh, congratulations. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, uh, and I think I'm going to ask you a question about um, students and uh, the, the, the role of um, campuses. Uh, and uh, it seems that, as if students have always been in the forefront of, uh, of movements for change, that the civil rights movement uh, would not have become uh, what it was without the huge numbers of, of students who went down to uh, the South to participate uh, with uh, people who were involved in the, uh, the, the voting rights uh, movement uh, and, and other struggles in the South. Uh, and as someone who, is, who has actually lived on campuses virtually all of my life, and I did not literally live, but uh, that is where the work that I have done has been located. Uh, and I, um, there have been moments when I was a, a, a bit despondent because it appeared as if uh, students were not as uh, conscious, uh, politically conscious, as I thought they should have been. Uh, but then, of course, uh, times have changed. And uh, uh, there is this uh, really um, powerful um, consciousness around issues, uh, structural racism, uh, uh, it's amazing the ways in which terms that we've been using for so long in a rather marginal, in rather marginal settings have become main, become a part of the mainstream uh, discourse. But maybe you can talk a little bit uh, about uh, what you see happening on uh, campuses and the role that you see students playing now. Yeah, one of my. Uh... My mentors and advisors here at the University of Georgia, Dr. Patina Love, one of the preeminent scholars of hip hop education. I love Dr. Love. She's I know her work. work. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, she's she's an advisor of mine. And uh, in our class on abolitionist movement the other day, she said it's for people thirty and older to break down the systems of old, and for people thirty and younger to build what is coming ahead. And so I think that utilizing our sites of our campuses and our college communities. As, as sites of organizing has a long and storied history across the country and continuing in that tradition by taking leadership in campaigns, um, not just around reforms within our institutions themselves, but within the community um, to ally ourselves with local struggles. Um, because the folks in the community will remember who it was that helped them get that street light on their street or who provisioned them with that mutual aid they needed to keep their lights on or to keep bread on the, on the cupboard shelves. And so getting involved in those local struggles to learn from the lived experiences of those that keep our communities running, um, to build those organizing skills that we'll use lifelong, to turn our, our moments of scholarship, you know, the histories that we have to write and the group projects we have to do, uh, to, to harness those moments for seeing how we can educate ourselves in ways that forward the movement. So, you know, using our studies in ways that help uh, propel the movement forward. But it's ultimately upon us, the students, and I think, you know, through our campus communities, um, through our organizing, um, at, through our affinity groups as, as, as colleagues in the same university, to, to be a part of deciding what the future looks like. And so um, it's, you know, it's, one, uh, it's a form of organizing, I think it's a long history, and, but one that needs to be carried forward. Day. Um, I want to ask you about.
about um, music. So in, uh, in order to get an education, uh, often uh, uh, instill in us a sense of superiority. And, and, and I've had many conversations with young people who are so excited about what they're learning, but they're also afraid that they're losing the capacity to communicate um, with those in the communities they've left behind. I'm telling you It's so important to stay grounded in the communities that they come from. And doing that lived expertise as much as the education we receive through these institutions themselves. Absolutely. And so, you know, I like, I like to talk about the fact that knowledge gets produced in many different venues. It's not just the university. And um, students, in order to be successful intellectuals, have to become aware of the fact that knowledge gets produced elsewhere and that they, they need to respect the knowledge that is produced in the community, in the prison, at the workplace. Uh, and the labor movement, uh, etc. So I just wanted, I just wanted to make that point. Uh, no, I think that's incredibly important, and that's why I emphasize the importance of students getting involved in local struggles. They might leave their hometown to go to college, but finding out what people in the ground, in the communities where they're living, have been fighting for, how they can help, and cutting their teeth and organizing by supporting folks that uh, might not come from that, that educate educational pedigree in what they're fighting for. Because so often we see college towns. Uh, the, the institutions themselves, the universities themselves, have a somewhat predatory relationship with re with regards to the, the community at large. And so um, disrupting that by getting involved in local struggles that help combat some of the exploitations that uh, the institutions have hired perpetrate on communities at large. Yeah. So well, let's talk about music now. I'm excited to ask you about music. Yeah, I got to jump the gun a little bit. I got to talk to me about what you see as connection between social justice and art, music in particular? You know, I don't think that um, um, struggles for social justice can be affected at all without um, the contributions of, of artists and, and, and musicians. Uh, um, and I, I was saying before that that that, that what is so impressive about the continuities of the uh, black struggle in uh, this hemisphere, um, what's so impressive is um, the fact that, that so much beauty was produced in the process of engaging in these struggles. And, and a lot of it resides, uh, a lot of it was in the form of, of music. Uh, and I, um, for a long time, I've studied um, the power of art. Uh, my training is in philosophy, and I've had a special interest in aesthetics and the relationship between art and politics, uh, art and, 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 and social transformation. And I've come to the conclusion that um, Art is the most powerful force when it comes to change. Uh, it, it is artists who um, allow us oftentimes to feel what we haven't yet learned how to say in the words that we 
uh, in our everyday vocabularies. It's um, artists who can um, illuminate uh, the, the, the path toward the future before we develop um, the actual um, descriptions of, 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 of what it is we think a revolutionized society is going to look like. And in the past, the assumption has always been, um, you know, perhaps not always, but generally, that when we have movements, we need music and poetry. Um, we, need, we need that for uh, relaxation and entertainment. Uh, you know, so you organize a rally, and then you have to bring in uh, those who are going to allow you to rest for a moment. It's and so important for sustaining these movements, yeah, and that joy is liberatory. It's an important part exactly, of Exactly, exactly. As, as a matter of fact, the ability to experience that collective joy uh, that musicians offer us uh, give us a sense of what it might be like to live in a liberated uh, society, yeah. Absolutely. I think hip hop particularly is such a powerful form of mass political education about the injustices of mass incarceration, the exploitations of capitalism. We learn through the music of, of these experiences and can also use that art for um, for um, envisioning a world that's different, in addition to the pure joy of experiencing art, for sure. Absolutely. And I, I, I know that, that you've been very... Um, active in using music um, as it connects to politics and social justice. And you gave us a sense uh, uh, of what uh, you do when, um, you know, I ask you a question towards the beginning of yeah. this conversation. And I was wondering whether you'd be willing to um, um, do a short performance now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a mess so long we forgot the meaning of cleaning and only magic could patch it up so we dream in a genie, by which I mean that we dream in a freedom, but freedom is fleeting, by which I mean between seeing people beaten and bleeding on our TVs, on the daily, on the weekly. I just want to relax a bit, crack a paps and watch some videos of cats and I'm wishing these idiots in Athens would quit with the classism. But I'm really not the great activist because everyone want to complain about the state of the system, congratulate themselves on Facebook for paying attention and homie, I know you're right, but if nobody mobilizes the noble fight, we stay in slaves for a century. And I wish simply given an ish would fix it. I wish given an ish was as simple as whistling Dixie. The only way to have to fix it is cashing my chips in. So he has to fix the system. First, I have to fix me. So next week is going to beat the rest of them. I'm waking up at seven, stretching and eating vegetables. Could be in my demons. Could never be fearsome. as feeding them and filling them, beating up on my eardrums. Oh, so as, we talk about, as we talk about the importance of art and music and bringing that joy that sustains us through organizing and through struggle, I just wanted to, you know, in partial closing, remind folks to care for themselves. I found self-compassion to be so critical for sustaining myself in this work, to seeing every day as a new learning experience and as a dress rehearsal for the challenges to come. So wake up early, stretch, eat your vegetables, drink lots of water, and in closing... <laughs> In closing, I want to ask, if I was your younger self, what would you say to me? Um, I don't know. I think I would say keep on doing what you're doing. All right. <laughs> and, you know, as, as, as the elder, I don't think it's my, my role 
to um, call for you know specific uh, ways of, of of being active and to tell young people that this is what you need to do. Uh, when I was young, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, and, and now I realize that those mistakes were perhaps even more important than the things I did right, because I learned from them. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, yeah, I can agree and, more. And I think you have the right to make your mistakes. I have <laughs> we'll actually, all learn from them. Yeah, some of my failures are the things I'm most proud of, because even in failing, I learned something or transformed our, you know, our collective imaginations about what's possible. And so, yeah, those mistakes are so necessary. Um, and I embrace them every day, just or show gratitude for the learning experiences that life shows me. But Dr. Davis, this has been so, so, so lovely. Um, the fulfillment for me of a lifelong dream. So uh, thank you again. Well, I've been so inspired by uh, listening to you and your music. Uh, uh, is there is there a way, do you have anything uh, online or? Yeah, yeah. I perform under the name Lingua Franca. Okay. So if you search Lingua Franca, you can find me on YouTube, on Spotify, on oh, Bandcamp. Absolutely. Wonderful. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for everyone who tuned in. It's been a joy to speak with, to you all. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you all. And we were listening to none other than Dr. Angela Davis. And Mariah Parker in conversation at the Speak Out Youth Summit 2020. Speak Out the Institute for Democratic Education and Culture, www.speakoutnow.org, Voices Changing Lives. Angela Davis is an iconic activist, scholar, and author who, over the past five years, has been at the forefront of our nation's quest for social justice. Past five decades has been at the forefront of our nation's quest for social justice. That's Dr. Angela Davis, PhD, former professor, law professor, at UCLA. Her work as an educator, both at the university level and in the larger public sphere, has always emphasized the importance of building communities of struggle for economic, racial, and gender Justice. Mariah Parker is a queer hip hop artist and PhD candidate in linguistics at the
the University of Georgia. She was also elected county commissioner at age 26 as part of the new wave of young women of color entering politics nationwide. These two scholar activists come together across generations to talk about art, politics, and how we can change the world. Thank you for listening.